seven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. seems we've reached the end of the story. We are left with the image of Jesus standing before his disciples, instructing them to go to the world with the gospel. The Renaissance artist Raphael depicts the moment in this fashion. We've got a painting. It's a moment that can, be, can seem to be kind of closed off to us, something that can be picked up or put down, put away in storage or hung on a wall. It can seem like something that's apart from us. But what if this painting came alive? What if you could walk into it and stand shoulder to shoulder with the disciples? What if that's in fact what Matthew wants us to do here? This whole line of thinking made me think of the Chronicles of Narnia and the voyage of the Dawn Treader. Through several books, C.S. Lewis tells the story of the Pevensey children who are drawn from the world of England into the world of Narnia to act as agents of rescue in the service of Aslan, the divine lion figure. In the Dawn Treader, they are brought to Narnia when a painting comes to life. And I actually have a clip of that this morning that I want you to watch and kind of get the sense of what that would be like. Seen the ship before? Yes. It's very Narnian looking, isn't it? Yeah. Well, just another reminder that we're here and not there. There once were two orphans who wasted their time believing in Narnian nursery rhyme. What's so fascinating about that picture anyway? It's hideous. Edmund, it looks like the water's actually moving. What rubbish, see? That's what happens when you read all those fanciful novels and fairy tales of yours. Edmund, the painting! <laughs> oh, the smash them on thing! children are brought into the painting, it's then that the story really begins. Everything, you know, the boring room in England, that's not the story. The story is when 
they're thrown into the sea and drawn into the dawn treader. As Matthew ends his story of the gospel, it's the beginning of our story as we are invited into it. Matthew doesn't dwell on the various appearances of Jesus that are recorded in John and Luke, or on everything that happens in the 40 days before Jesus ascends to heaven after his resurrection. Rather, he zooms in on this moment when Jesus gives his disciple their mission, which is the beginning of our mission. The story will go on. So let's begin. We're looking at verses 16 through 20, and it says that here that the 11 of the disciples, because of course Judas is no longer in their number, are with Jesus in Galilee on a mountain. We're not sure what mountain this is. But notice how everything has really kind of come full circle here. The bulk of Jesus' ministry took place in the region of Galilee. That's where we see most of his travels with the disciples. And now he's brought them to Galilee yet again so that they might be commissioned and sent into their own mission. Now, it's interesting here because it says when they saw Jesus, they began worshiping him, but some doubted. Again, that's kind of an interesting thing to mention here. You know, we think about the authenticity of these counts, the reliability of the reports. If you were making this up, why would you say any of the disciples doubted? <laughs> um, seems some of them did genuinely doubt. And perhaps it's because of just everything that had happened, you know, just wondering how could this possibly be that Jesus is actually raised from the dead. It could also be as well, though, that it seems that when they first saw Jesus here, because Jesus' time with the disciples was kind of like coming and going. He'd spend some time with them, then he'd go, and then he'd be, uh, he would appear again. And so in this instance, it seems as though they're seeing him far away, far off. Because it says that Jesus came to them. And so you can imagine kind of Jesus far away, and they're like, that's Jesus. Some of them are, uh, are doubting. Some of them begin worshiping him. In any case, he comes to them, and he has something to say to them. Verse 18, it's, he, he says to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, this is foundational to everything that he's going to be telling the disciples here. And it's not a new claim, per se, because we've seen throughout the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus assert his authority. In Matthew eleven twenty-seven, 27, he says, All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And we see the disciples testify to Jesus' Authority. You think about when the disciples were on the Sea of Galilee and it was stormy and Jesus calms the water by a mere word. And he says, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. That's what the disciples say about Jesus. And you think about the, how the Pharisees responded when Jesus asserted his authority to forgive a man his sins. 
We think back to the beginning when the wise men come and offer gifts to Jesus because he is this promised king. And then we also think about how in Matthew 4, the devil tempted him while he was in the wilderness and tried to offer him all the kingdoms of this world if he would just bow down and worship him. Jesus, of course, didn't need to do that because it all belongs to him. And this has been revealed because he has overcome death through his resurrection. It's now clear, it's now beyond doubt that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus Christ. And with this declaration, we also see yet again a fulfillment of prophecy as we turn to an old friend of ours, a passage that we've gone to again and again through the Gospel of Matthew and Daniel 7, verses 13 through 14. This is very familiar now to you at this point. Daniel says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached that ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. The purpose that God ordained from all eternity, from the very beginning, is that God the Son would become man and receive all this power, all this authority, and rule and reign. And what's more, bring everything under the sway of God's power and authority. We see Paul testify to this in Ephesians 1, verses 9 and 10 and 22 through 23. Paul says, He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So Jesus is, is stating the facts here that he is this king who possesses all this power and authority. And the point of that is, is that, well, the disciples should listen up, given who Jesus is. But it's more than that as well. Jesus, in reminding them of who he is and declaring who he is, is giving them assurance that their commission is not something of their own creation, but is which is but is one which is given by the Most High King. And they'll need that comfort. They'll need that reassurance for everything that they will face. And so what follows from this, from this establishment of Jesus' authority, is this command that they therefore go and make disciples of all nations. Now at this point, you got to imagine the disciples might be wondering, really? Us? You want us to go? All us, us crew of 11 who scattered and ran away when you faced the cross? You want us to go to the world and make disciples? 
In their minds, they probably thought, Jesus, it would be much better if you just stuck around and made the disciples. We don't have a handle on this yet. And I think, you know, we too today, we can wonder, you know, why in the world would God ordain that the gospel would be carried to the ends of the earth by the church? Why not just Jesus personally? He can just ping pong around the world presenting the gospel. Well, Jesus offers some explanation in the gospel of John. I think we can allow that this is still a bit of a mystery. You can ask why to the cows come home. It's a little bit of a mystery, but Jesus offers some explanation. In John 14, 19 through 24, this is before he dies, but he's anticipating all of this. He says, before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? So Judas here is kind of playing our role. Our role is, Jesus, why don't you just kind of stick around and show yourself to everybody? Jesus replied, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. So just remember something that Jesus has said here in these verses, that he says that I am in you. That... Christ is going to dwell within his disciples and he's going to manifest himself to the world through the teaching that he has passed on to them. And this is enough to determine whether someone would actually love Jesus Christ or not. We had a discussion in Sermon Circle a few weeks ago talking about, you know, if Jesus was, was here, would, he ha- would just everyone in situate come to Christ and believe? And what we talked about is, no, that wouldn't necessarily be the case. Because we see even in his own day, as he was going around Israel, not everyone came and believed. And so the teaching of the gospel is sufficient because it's representing who Christ is. And if people don't respond positively to that, then they are rejecting Christ. We also see in Paul's letter to the Corinthians that it's God's intent to glorify himself through weak vessels like ourselves. In 2 Corinthians 4, verses 6 through 7, Paul says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, may his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. So again, we're representing Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. So Paul's like, don't get it twisted. Like, don't be mistaken. It's not about us being all-powerful. God chooses the weakest of us, the most foolish of us, to demonstrate that it's not these guys, it's me. It's Jesus Christ. And so, don't be bashful in the call that God has placed on your life. Don't think that 
this is something about you having to play it humble or something like that. Because what God's aiming to do through all of us, even if you feel incompetent and not worthy and all this, is to glorify himself. It's not about glorifying yourself. And when we, when we turn back to the Gospel of John, we see that it's been God's purpose that he would reveal the truth of Christ through, through the disciples, through their union in him. In John 17, verses 20 through 23, and I'm just going to go down to verse 22, Jesus prays, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So as people encounter the church, as they encounter the love of Christ that has united us together, they will see the reality of Christ. And so, with all this in place, understanding that God has, in fact, purpose that we would carry forth this message and make disciples. The question then is, well, who do we make disciples of? And Jesus tells his disciples here, of all nations. Now, we take this for granted now, but this was a radical shift, even from the time of Jesus' own ministry with the disciples. Because we read in Matthew 10, verses 5 through 6, when Jesus sent out his disciples to proclaim the coming of the kingdom of God, he says, these 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. So Jesus had told his disciples, focus only on the Jews at this point. Only them. No one else. But as we go along, and even from the very beginning we see hints of this, but most explicitly as we as we go along towards the end, we see that it's clear that the scope of this message is intended to reach the ends of the earth. In Matthew 24, 14, Jesus tells his disciples, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. The return of Christ is just waiting for that to be brought to completion the full proclamation of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And, you know, if someone was kind of a skeptic of Christianity, they might think, like, okay, this is a bit of maybe some kind of innovation to kind of expand the brand beyond the Jews so you can get more followers. But when we go to the Old Testament, we see that this has, in fact, been God's intent all along. Now, Isaiah 49, verses 5 through 7, we find this amazing prophecy given. Isaiah writes, And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. He says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who is despised and abhorred by the nation, for the servant of rulers. Kings will see you and stand up. Princes will see and bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. 
Now, this prophecy was given hundreds of years before Jesus was born. You'd think this was just taken out of the New Testament. It was not. And yet, it fits perfectly everything that Jesus has claimed and everything that we've seen played out in the course of human history. That all nations would be drawn to him. That, in fact, kings would bow down and serve. That somehow, the church overcame the Roman Empire. Such that the emperor both allowed it and made it the religion of the empire. Unimaginable. Unfathomable. And yet God saw it all and prophesied it all. And we go even further back to Genesis. Genesis 12, 1 through 5, where you really have the beginnings of the nation of Israel and the person of Abraham. At this point, his name is Abram. And the covenant that God makes with Abram He says this, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And you could just end it there and be like, okay, that's great. This is going to be great for Abraham and his family, the nation of Israel. The end. Then God also says this, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. See, the way that God has always worked, he he started with the chosen people of Israel, but he started from this single point in order to expand and encompass the whole world. The salvation of of every person from any, any tribe or tongue has always been God's intent. Jesus hasn't only given us salvation. That's what's becoming clear here to the disciples. It's becoming clear here to us as we're reading these verses. He hasn't only given us salvation. He has also given us a mission. He's invited us into God's mission to bring salvation to the world. To bring Jesus to everyone. And the way that I kind of imagine it, and maybe this is helpful for some of the kids in the room, is, is like this. is, You know, mom has made supper, and uh, she tells you, go get your dad. Tell him dinner's ready. And of course, if your dad is any like, anything like me, or my father, or all the fathers here in this room, when dad's working on something, it can t- be tough to kind of tear him away from what he's doing to get to the dinner table. And so if it's your job to go tell dad it's time to get ready for supper, you've got to go do it. Otherwise, he's not coming. The food will be cold on the table. Now imagine if instead of going and telling dad, hey, it's time for supper, you went and started playing with your toys. Well, mom wouldn't be happy with you. Uh, the food will get cold. Imagine this also, like maybe you go to dad, but you're like, man, that sure smells good, and you just like smack, start, you know, smacking your lips and stuff. Dad's probably not going to pay attention. He's, he's busy doing whatever he's doing. He's probably going to think, oh, this kid's weird. We've got to work with him. <laughs> um, 
No, you just got to go out and you got to tell him. If you do not tell him that the time has come for us to eat supper, it's not going to come together. This is, the same applies when it comes to the gospel. Now is the time for people to come to God, to respond to Jesus Christ with faith. But they have to be told. If you don't go and tell them, they're not going to come. If you just go around and just kind of like, hmm, this is kind of nice, and just kind of hoping people kind of get the drift, that's not going to work either. Paul says in Romans 10, verses 13 through 15, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. They're beautiful because our world is hungry. Now they turn to all kinds of like bad sources of nourishment and fulfillment, anything other than God. But our world is hungry and we have the bread of life. We have the water which takes away all thirst. And God has said, go bring it to them. Call them to the table. And what this actually consists in, according to Jesus here, when he says, go and make disciples, he says in verse 19 that this consists in baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So, some things to notice here is, once again, Jesus is making it clear that he is the divine Son of God, that a person would be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. But also notice what the foundation of discipleship is. It starts with the act of grace. The grace that we receive in Jesus Christ as we express faith and are baptized in his name. Baptism is the beginning. It's, it's foundational to discipleship. In Romans 6, 4, Paul says, We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. We can't live a new life apart from that. We can try, but it's always going to circle back around to our dead ways. And when we go back to the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, you remember that John the Baptist was baptizing, but he was saying that the baptism that Jesus was going to bring was going to be so much better. be a baptism of the Holy Spirit that could bring this new life, a baptism of fire that purifies us. The Apostle Peter in Acts 2.38, as he's preaching to the population of Jerusalem, says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You have those two things there. The baptism is not only about the forgiveness of sins, all oh, that's huge, that's immense, 
That's essential. What the baptism of the Holy, uh, what baptism also presents to us is the gift of the Holy Spirit. And it's important for us to point that out because when Jesus says that we're to teach them to obey everything that Jesus has said, we're not calling people to do it in their own power. We're calling them to do it by the grace of Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells within them, by God's power, not their own, so that, as we were talking about earlier, like jars of clay, God might be glorified. And the obedience part is essential in this way. It's not that you know we can't ever stumble or fall or make mistakes, because we all do. I do. But you can't claim to follow Jesus Christ and be running in the complete opposite direction that he's walking. That, that demonstrates that you don't really want to have anything to do with him. Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commands. Very simple. Not easy. We know that we struggle with that. But the idea is if you truly love Jesus, then you will strive to live by his teachings, by his commands. But thankfully, not in our own power, but by the power of the Holy Spirit and through the grace that we've received in him. If you love Jesus, then you're not going to sit on the sidelines in terms of you know, acting the way that you're supposed to act. But looking specifically here, one of the commands that disciples are to teach other disciples is this command to go make disciples. And so if we're not doing that, if we're not making disciples, if we're not moving outward, then we're living in disobedience. If we love Christ, then we'll seek to make disciples and so that others can know his love. And what this really kind of brings us to is the reality that following Jesus is not merely a propositional sort of arrangement. It's transformational in nature. Fortunately, I think a lot of times we think of like following Jesus like following someone on social media or maybe thinking of it like in this political sphere. You know, you hear a candidate say this or that and you're like, okay, I support those uh, positions. So I'll vote for that guy or, or, or that woman. And that's kind of the end of it. It doesn't require anything of you. You just say, okay, I agree. And that's how a lot of people view Jesus. Like, okay, I see him. I, yeah, I believe. I, I can sign on the dotted line. That's it. But that's not the end for which Christ came. He came for our salvation. And salvation looks like not merely removing us from punishment, but also inviting us into the life of the kingdom of God, into the family business of bringing God's work of redemption to the ends of the earth. And like we saw, you know, in the clip of the kids going into the water, and as we think about baptism, 
what we're really doing is passing from the old world into a new world. And we're brought into an adventure, really. A mission. A calling. That we didn't have before, but which we've gained in Jesus Christ. And so if we're going to really answer this call, if we're, if we're really going to follow Jesus, there's a certain mindset of ours that needs to be destroyed. Um, I, I thought this could be illustrated while using, using these cups. So a lot of times I, I think we, you know, we think about, okay, here's my faith. This is my faith in Jesus. It's the gospel. It's the church. And then we add other things into our lives and line them up. So I, you know, I go to spin class and uh, maybe we go to Boy Scouts or I have, uh, I have my job. Anybody go hunting, fishing? And you keep adding things, you keep adding things and, you know, if I can move this all along, you run out of space and things start falling off. And sometimes, unfortunately, it's this one that falls off. The, the trouble is, is this is thinking about this all the same way. It's putting all these things on the same level with each other. They're not on the same level. Now, they don't have to necessarily conflict with one another. Sometimes you just have too many cups, and some things, you know, they got to go. This one better not go. But the idea is this, is that everything you do is nested inside of this, inside of the gospel mission. And in everything you do, you're bringing praise and glory to God through those things that you're doing. These are your opportunities for witness. Everything, it's not like you have to go, like, not, not to knock them too much, but like we've had Jehovah's Witnesses going up and down the street. I'm not saying you've got to do that. You don't. I don't think it's very effective. Is that wherever you're going, you're representing Christ. You're representing the kingdom of God. And I guess another analogous way to think about it is almost like as a spy. And, and no, spies kind of have a negative connotation to them, but I, I say a spy because sometimes we talk about being ambassadors for the gospel. But ambassadors are very official positions. And you think about me as kind of being like, ambassador because, you know, it's my position here at the church. It's my full-time job. A spy, though, if he's a good spy, he doesn't wear it on his sleeve. Wherever he's going, what he's trying to do is advance the national interests of, of his country. Now, of course, in saying not wearing it on, on his sleeve, this is where the analogy breaks down. Where I'm not saying don't talk about Jesus. You're supposed to definitely talk about Jesus. But the idea is that wherever you're going, you bring the gospel. It's not like it has to be in a very specific, ordained venue. And even if you're not talking about Jesus, you can advance the values of the kingdom of God, which can act as the seedbed for the gospel. So you think about like teaching, you know, sharing the teachings of Christ. You can bring that into your workplace. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Man, would a lot of workplaces be better if they operated in that kind of way. Be the champion of that. Be the leader of that. And then that lays the groundwork 
for people realizing seeing the source of that is Jesus Christ. And that kind of just, I think that points out the reality that when we think about teaching, we also have to think about teaching as not being limited to what I'm doing right now, preaching a sermon or teaching a class. Those are definitely avenues of teaching other people, but it's not the only way that you teach others. Anyone that is a parent here is a teacher, has been a teacher, you have grandkids, you're a teacher. It's relational, just living. If, you work, having a, if you're in a workplace where you, know, you have to show someone how, how to do something, that's teaching, even if you're not having them sit down and take notes and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's by example. And I think this is how a lot of people actually come to Christ, is as they see Christ being lived out, and so you have both the word and the action, and they both ha- meet up, match up, and they say, okay, this Christian is not a hypocrite. They're not saying one thing and doing another, but they're doing and saying, and it's all making sense, and it's pointing to the reality of Jesus. It's then that people say, Jesus is who he truly says he is. And I want to be transformed. I want to be saved in just that kind of way. And so as Jesus is calling us to this, as he's calling the disciples this, really what he is is he's following up on that initial call that he gave to the disciples in the beginning of the gospel. In Matthew 4.19, he says, Come follow me, and I will send you out to fish for people. Remember, he said that right at the beginning. Hey, this is what I'm calling you to. And they responded. They began following him. And he says, okay, this is it. This is your time. This is the moment. Now, I think a lot of times when we, when we think about fishing, we think about it as kind of like the rod and you know, line kind of way. But that's a very individualistic kind of way of looking at it. and puts a lot of pressure on us because we think, well, gee, maybe I'm not a great fisherman. I can't cast it out real far or... You know, I'm just not good. And we, you know, to carry that over into the gospel, maybe you're not the best at explaining everything. And I, I get that. But fortunately, this isn't a solo mission. It's not like you're just dropped into the middle of this like mission impossible and you're expected to do everything. No, this is a mission that God has given to the church. And so all together, more like a net, as a net has all those knots tied together, we are joined together as the body of Christ to gather in people so that they may come to know Jesus Christ. And so the way that we facilitate this, as I was mentioning earlier in the announcements, is through our discipleship process, this discipleship pyramid we've got here. And... Each level offers an opportunity for us to move forward in this mission. And each one is important for us to participate in. If, if people aren't coming to church on a Sunday morning for worship, um, the, the negative side of it is that I think it suggests to people that, well, the people here must not really love each other very much or not love God. Or 
Maybe they don't really care about the truth or this doesn't seem very true to them. Otherwise, there would be more people here if this was really true. And on the flip side, as we gather together, both things are nourished. We are testifying that Jesus Christ is who he truly says he is. And our love flourishes. And this is, we, you know, John 17, this is how people see Jesus. As they see the love that we share with one another, that springs from the love that we've received in Jesus Christ. And then in the small groups, you've got opportunities for receiving wisdom and, trans, and, and growing in transformation. And, and this is the thing, it's, it's not something, you know, you can grow out of. Because if you feel like you're a person like, okay, I'm all wise, I'm all perfect, I'm all set, well, that's great. I really want you in small group then because I want you for all the people that are just starting out. See, we need, we need people that are just starting in the faith. We need people who are mature in the faith. And this is what it means to make disciples, to teach each other what it means to follow Jesus. And then with the crucial studies, that's just growing in your understanding. It's getting equipped so that you don't remain as spiritual babies just on milk, but you get to the meat part, and you're better enabled to share the gospel with other, other people. You have, your understanding of your faith is more coherent, so you can ex actually explain it to people. Um, and so with all of this, like none of this is, it's not like a formula where you're like, okay, you add you know, these things all together, and you get a certain result. That's not the case. What this is, is our effort to put one foot in front of the other and to walk by faith. Jesus has given this command to go and make disciples. And so we go. And we walk by faith, believing that God has the power to move mountains. Because if it was just by our own human calculations and estimations, you know, it's tough to think that any of this would work. And yet, it has. For over 2,000, for like 2,000 years, it's worked. Not because of man's power, but because of the power of God. And as we go forth in this, Jesus gives his disciples, he gives us this reassurance in verse 20, he says, And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. The one who possesses all authority and power is with us to the end of the age. God is with us. Remember Matthew testifying to this in his first chapter, Matthew 1.23, The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. We remember when Jesus said in Matthew 18, 20, for where two or three are gather in my name, there I am with them. Jesus is with us today. He's present in all circumstances. He's going with us. And we need him to be with us if we're going to succeed. We see that God gives this promise to his people in the Old Testament. We see in the case of Moses and Joshua, in Exodus 3.12, God says to Moses, I will be with you, and this will be the sign that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. And he tells Joshua, 
No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave nor forsake you. Now that applies individually. Like we each individually have that promise that Christ will be with you wherever you're going, wherever this crazy journey takes you. Christ is with you. He's also with us, the church, all together in all circumstances. And just as it's essential that we have the Holy Spirit so that we would live in obedience to the teachings of Christ, so is the Holy Spirit also the gift that God gives to us so that we might be able to proclaim the gospel. That's the promise that Jesus gives to his disciples in John 14. He tells them, I'll ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. All this I have spoken while still with you, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. Now we can imagine that the disciples would be troubled and afraid They've seen all this stuff play out with Jesus being crucified. He's been raised, but now he's leaving them again. But even before all this took place, Jesus was reassuring them, don't be troubled, don't be afraid. Because the divine person of the Holy Spirit is going to dwell within us. He dwelt within those original apostles, a bunch of fishermen, a tax collector, uh, kind of a political zealot, and just... uh, hodgepodge of these, this group of 11, and God somehow used them to turn the world upside down. That same Holy Spirit, that same person of the Holy Spirit dwells within us and is ready to turn things upside down. You see, the story is not over. The end of the age has yet to appear. Jesus' death and resurrection was decisive the D-Day of salvation, but the mission goes on. Because while we know Jesus, there are billions of people who do not. And so this means we march. We march because we are part of the picture. The gospel is not a dead, lifeless thing hung on the wall. It's an active mission that has been passed on to us. It was given by our fathers and mothers in the faith who came before us here at this church. We've been in existence here for 181 years here in Situate. Think about all those people who have come before us. They've passed on this mission to us. They've entered their rest. We remain alive to carry it forward. And they received it from their fathers and mothers in the faith, and so on and so forth, back across 2,000 years, all the way back to the apostles who received this mission from Jesus Christ. It is our mission just as much as it was theirs. 
you have been given a responsibility. As Jesus has taught us, we are servants left in charge of the household. It's a responsibility, but it's also the greatest honor you could possibly receive. You've been called to serve in God's mission to rescue humanity. Not just some of us, every single one of us, every Christian, each one of us and all of us together. We are deployed together as a band of brothers and sisters to carry out this common mission. So let it encompass your whole life. Let it transform and shape everything you do. Jesus has called you to action. So act. Take up the pathways that RCC provides. Trust in the power of the Holy Spirit. And let's see what God will do. Let us pray. Dear Father, it is incredible to us, it's unimaginable to us, Father, that you would want to include us in any of your works, Father, because we are human beings who are prone to failure, to messing things up. And yet, Father, we see that you have invited us into the mission of God to restore the world, to restore humanity, to save humanity in and through Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we pray that just as we've readily accepted the grace of Jesus Christ, that we might be forgiven, that we would just as readily accept the mission of Christ, which he has also given to us. Father, help us to be obedient in answering this call. By the power of the Holy Spirit, help us to be faithful in passing on the teachings of Christ and making disciples. Father, we pray that the Spirit would be at work turning the hearts of our neighbors here in Situate and here in Rhode Island, Father, so that they might believe in Jesus Christ and be baptized and follow him and join your mission, Father. Father, make your passion, make your love for the world our same love. Help us to love in the same way that you love, Father, and to join you in the work that you're doing. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Hey there, Pastor Tom here. I hope you enjoyed this sermon I offered to Rockland Community Church. Rockland Community Church is located at 212 Rockland Road in North Situate, Rhode Island, just around the bend from Situate Public High School. We invite you to join us in person or virtually this Sunday as we begin our series in the letters of 1 and 2 Peter. It's our joy to welcome you into our community.